You are listening to the Give Me Five podcast, episode 24, the G.I. Joe episode. G.I. Joe! A real American hero! Rush out on an uptown train, doors open, and she walks in, she's soaking, caught in the rain, her skin shines. This is the Gimme Five Podcast, where each week we discuss the things that we found interesting or entertaining. It could be movies, music, games, streaming TV, or in this case, toys. toys. Yay, toys! Woo! I'm Greg, and I am joined, as always, by America's daring, highly trained special mission force, Jimmy. Go, Joe! And Rob, our resident, ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. Cobra! <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> This week, we are getting nostalgic and being ridiculous by talking about some of our favorite toys from the 80s and 90s, uh, specifically and obviously G.I. Joe. And to help us a little on little later in the episode, we are going to be inviting the product manager for G.I. Joe and for the boys' toy line, uh, Kirk Bazigian, to the show. Uh, Kirk and his team were largely responsible for the G.I. Joe phenomena as we know it, and I'm Totally geek to be learning the stories um, behind the toys and that you know I grew up playing with. Oh, it's it's gonna be good. If you guys grew up in the eighties and you played with GI Joe, you, you're gonna want to stick around and listen to the episode. It's gonna I'm be so great. nervous. We're also gonna ask him what his top five favorite GI Joe uh, characters and vehicles happen to be. Uh, it'll be very interesting to learn, and it's gonna bring back some great memories for all of us, I think. And we're gonna talk about the documentary briefly called The Toys That Made Us, which is what led us into contacting uh, Kirk Bazigian from from Hasbro to just talk to him about about G.I. Joe in general. Um, he was also turned into the character Law of Law and Order fame, uh, the character, not the TV show. Not the show. TV show, yeah. Yeah, the, the MP character who came with the very cool-looking German Shepherd. Yep. So that's what we're going to chat about. So, guys, this is a review show, and there will probably be spoilers. We will try our best to avoid any major plotline twists. For example, if you did not know that knowing is half the battle... G.I. Joe! Thank you, Rob. Or that I broke my spirit G.I. Joe figure and actually tried to hide it from my parents by wrapping him up in toilet paper and burying him in my backyard. Did you make a little gravestone for him? No, I didn't, actually. But I wanted to avoid the shame of having my parents buy me that figure the same day. You know, there's a group of people that went and did like an archaeology dig recently, did a documentary where they went and found all the E.T. games from that Atari made and then buried in the desert somewhere. I feel like the Give Me Five podcast should fund a dig where we go to your old backyard and try to find that spirit figure. Mm, that would be on Sterling Street in Norfolk, Virginia. So let's do we it. Will be, uh, get, the, get the Give Me Five Mobile. <laughs> GoFundMe.com slash Give Me Five Mobile. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag we need it. Yeah. yeah, this episode really won't have too many spoilers. Uh, stick around for a great interview with Kurt Bazigian. And uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And like always, you can find us on Facebook by searching for the Give Me Five podcast. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Give Me Five Pod. And you can also email us, give me five podcast at gmail.com. And remember, guys, it really helps us out. Leave us a review on iTunes or whatever podcast you're using. It helps us stand out from the crowd. We are on a, a new vehicle or a new podcast delivery system as of yesterday, which I, I know Jimmy knows. I'm not sure if Rob knows. No, I don't. Yes. Surprise! Uh, yeah. Uh, hey. Player.fm. Player we had a listener that contacted me and said that they like the show or they love the show and they really wish that they could they've been downloading it directly to listen to it. Uh, and I asked which, which system they were on. They said they use player.fm. So I did apply us for that and we are available there as well. So our, yet another way are to all of uh, our back episodes up as well. Yes. It's all there. Awesome. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. But also of note, we have a store. We do. We do. You can get all of your cool. Give me five podcast swag at give me five podcast.threadless.com. Check us out. It really helps us out and keeps us on the air, guys. Currently some awesome logo t-shirts and stuff. Eventually we're going to get um, underwear with Rob's face on it. Uh, right on the butt. Yeah, right there. Right <laughs> on the butt. Can I be on the front? You might. You, no, you might. I'm No, I'm, I'm on the front. I'm on the front too. It's all me. Oh, geez. Okay. Fine. So welcome to the Give Me Rob podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but see the back is the back of my head and the front is my face. <laughs> oh god. So so you're really inside my head. And it's only men's boxer briefs. Well, that's all we have, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, moving on. Um <laughs> <laughs> Stick around guys, it gets better. <laughs> so the other day I was kind of zipping through Netflix and I saw that there was the show called the toys that made us and i looked through the episode list and there was four of them uh one was on star wars one was on barbie one was on he-man and one was on gi joe mm -hmm. and i was a gi joe kid i know jimmy was a gi joe kid i know oh, yeah. rob was was for the most part absolutely a gi joe kid um we grew up at that sweet spot for the most part and i, I sat down to watch the documentary and it it was it was really good it was fun you know, it was, it was about toys, so it needs to be fun. It had some serious parts. It had some fun parts. But it was – it brought back so many memories that I – I haven't been too far removed from my G.I. Joe love. I – you know, I, there's a website called yojo.com. That sounds like which, a porno. <laughs> my G.I. Joe love. My G.I. Joe love. Well, that is my series of romance novels that I write, my historically accurate romance novels, nice. my G.I. Joe love. Uh, you can pick those up on uh, any ebook reader. Please do that. It's, you know, it's funding the podcast. Um, no, so like uh, there's a website called yojo.com that has anything available G.I. Joe related that you could want. Pictures of all the figures, uh, 360 rotations of the figures. It has the pictures of the blueprints that came with the vehicles. Um, you name it, it's got it. And I used to go to the website all the time and, you know, just to look and be like, see if I could click on the name of something and be like, oh, that was the guy that had the, you know, that he wore the baseball cap and the the baseball jersey and came with the giant grenade launcher. <laughs> you, remember, you know, remember who that was? You know, like I would try to remember the names, the characters and stuff. And I surprisingly good memory for it. Yeah. Um. So, you know, watching the, this documentary really kind of brought us to the point of where we, where I contacted Kirk Bazigian and, you know, was, you know, we are going to have him on the show in a little bit, but I kind of wanted to, before we bore him with our, our reflecting on nerdness, this, these toys, <laughs> yeah, on our nerdness. 
um, I wanted to chat a little bit about you know the show and what you guys thought about it. I thought it was super revealing. Um, very, very informative. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I just, I don't know if these things happen and you don't really think too much about it or the thought process that went into it. But there was a time where, you know, for what, like however many years between the, you know, 12 inch figures that they shrunk them down and they came up with all these different character names that it really just kind of blew my mind. Yeah, I was, um, I always find it interesting the the pre-internet era, you know, we had all these toys, we, all of them, and you see certain toys that come out in certain ways they do things. I thought that one, the thing that was really interesting was that so that they could paint all the other figures, they decided to leave one figure unpainted. Yeah. And they just, like, oh, we'll just mold them in all black. And that ended up being the most popular figure. Just, it, to yeah. save Arguably. Yeah. Which is such a happy accident. But even some of the other ones, I mean, I thought that the, I watched all of them. I don't know if you guys did. Um, but the, the Star Wars one was fascinating. And the, you know, yeah. some of these things I, I know about just from being on the internet, like I know about the fact that they weren't ready for the demand, for the demand. And then they had to mail out the figures after the Christmas season. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of, you know, lore history, but like the one I, I watched the Barbie one, I thought it was really interesting that it was a big deal when Barbie's eyes went from facing down into the right to yeah. straight forward, which I thought was really kind of interesting and something I didn't think about mm-hmm. before, you know, like. Barbie becoming no longer like subservient mm-hmm. it was neat. And just, um, yeah, I thought it was a really cool documentary and, and even the He-Man stuff, you know, they, the He-Man episode, because I, I had a few He-Man toys. I didn't have quite as many as of the GI Joe toys. Right. Yeah. Same with me. But I thought it was the, the eye of the power thing where they, I don't know if you saw that part where they were talking about like how kid, they were watching a bunch of kids play and the kids were always talking about having power and how, they wanted to be more powerful and all that. And they were like, well, these kids are always having to do whatever their parents say. Why don't we put something in their hands that is powerful and can raise a sword up and be powerful? <laughs> I thought it was really interesting psychology of the, the whole toy line. And that, that was how they actually got the tagline for He-Man, which is I have the power. Yeah, which is really very in- – oops, hit, pressed a button, <laughs> which is really very interesting. Um, uh, so, you know, I've – not sure what's coming because it's I think an eight part documentary that uh, the toys that made us on Netflix and I know that there's going to be a Hello Kitty one which honestly I'm not a big fan of Hello Kitty yeah I'll probably oh, skip yeah. that one um, so there's going to be Lego Star Trek and uh, Hello Kitty I don't know what the um, last one is I'm going to watch at least two of those episodes <laughs> yeah definitely he's going to watch the Hello Kitty one twice <laughs> no negative <laughs> nice yeah. Uh, well, the Lego one, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to watch that one. I say in my room full of Legos, but I'll probably watch all of them because I think they're they're interesting. And I'm, it's weird because the, the ones that you end up learning the most about are the ones that you're most distanced from. So I could not be more distanced from Hello Kitty. Don't lie. I've seen your room. <laughs> well, that's pretty much what I wanted to say about the toys that made us the documentary on Netflix. Uh, if you grew up playing with those toys, I think you'd really enjoy watching it. Plus, if you just want to know about the toys of the past and what led us to today, it's a really interesting watch. We're going to pause for a quick moment and get set up for the interview with Kurt Bazigian, and we'll be right back before you know it. Yo, Joe! He'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe! Okay, we are back, and we are here with Kurt Bozigian, the former VP of Boys Marketing from Hasbro, and also known as one of the people that 
built my childhood uh, by <laughs> by you know ushering GI Joe into the consciousness. I think shaped many of our childhoods. Anybody who grew up in the eighties. Yep. So uh, welcome, Kirk. Welcome. Thank you for hey, joining hi, us, guys. Great to be with you. So um, yeah, let's uh, just wanted to give you you a little bit of of my history with GI Joe, and um, I, I pretty much hit the sweet spot. I was about six when the line came out, and I was about zero when the line came out. <laughs> he, he's a youngster. <laughs> and I remember I got a bunch of different toys for my birthday that year. And one of them was the Flash action figure, the the orange chest piece and all that, and the laser yeah. gun and all that. And from that moment on, I pretty much told my mom, "Bring." I was living in Pittsburgh, PA, or Monroeville, Pennsylvania. And I said, let's go back to Children's Palace, rest in peace, and <laughs> uh-huh. all these other toys. I want to get all these other fi- action figures from the back of the package. Oh, yeah. Ah, so, so it worked. It totally yeah. <laughs> Our plan started to work. Your it nefarious totally plan worked. And I remember I got rock and roll because of the giant machine gun. Uh, I could not find snake eyes anywhere. There was probably some tears. You, Yeah. That was, that was the biggest problem I had because I wanted snake eyes just like every other kid in America. Snake mm-hmm. eyes was so hard to mm-hmm. find every at every iteration although i came in later greg i'll let you finish yeah. but you know we'll get to me in a second and I, I remember i got the the jump jet pack the uh mobile missile system and the how laser or no the the single barreled laser that you guys had you had pretty much the whole first I, yeah, line. I tr- I, like i said I'm, I'm not kidding i returned all of my other presents my parents you know my parents were like are, you, are you sure and i'm like yeah these things are cool and so that was my toy. So I didn't have a lot of Star Wars. I didn't have a lot of Transformers. That was my toy for the the run. So again, as I said before, thank you. And uh, you know, the one other little thing is, I it pretty much led to my career as a three D artist. Um, I got started as a three D artist for the military, and I got my first job uh-huh. because my portfolio had a bunch of GI Joe vehicles that I modeled. So so I modeled cool. a his. I modeled a couple other of the of the vehicles for a simulation thing and i applied at lockheed martin and i just happened to hit a person interviewing me that was also a gi joe fan and got hired for for a few years and now i teach 3d so again more more thank you yeah that's great so uh guys any any gi well, joe memories you'd like to share well we... while i um well i didn't return any of my presents to go get the other ones um, <laughs> I, I actually did, did collect some of them. Um, like Greg, I had a hard time finding snake eyes and I ended up, um, settling with quick kick, um, who I viewed as another ninja. Um, but th- I didn't, I never got any of the vehicles The the vehicles were just too expensive for me, uh, or for my family. So we didn't get, I didn't get any of the vehicles, but I remember, I mean, I had, I had quite a few of them because, you know, I would get them, you know, like a little at a time here and a little at a time there. So my, my collection would grow ever so slightly, you know, over time. Um, but I still remember sitting out in my front yard. Um, I had like these three, uh, like, well, when I was a kid, they were like knee size rocks, you know, like side by side. And they were kind of like set into the side of like a dirt mound. So they made like the perfect terrain for like crawling the GI Joes over and having these mock battles and stuff. I mean, I played with, I played with them in the shower and in the tub and stuff, you know, I, it, I, it was, I, they were, they were a big part of my childhood as well. Um, I mean, I did have some transformers, um, not so much the He-Man stuff, but, but yeah, GI Joe, GI Joe was, uh, was my jam when I was a kid. I had, I had quite a few of them by the time I was, by the time I was done collecting. That's great to hear you. You're... Now I have no idea where they are. 
Yeah, you guys are real fans. That's cool. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm I'm younger than Rob and Greg, uh, but you know he I was never, kind of <laughs> he never stops rubbing that in. By the way, yeah, constantly reminding. <laughs> yeah, uh, Greg's birthday was very recently, and I I said thank you for always being older than me. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you know it's it's kind of funny. I um I was born in '84. So, you know, just after, uh, the, the three and a quarter inch figure kind of relaunch. Um, but looking back on, on the favorite figures that I had as a kid, I was really surprised to see them as 82, 83. Um, I had a, a brother who was five years older than me. Um, okay. He had quite the collection. Um, so, you know, my favorites, and we'll get into them later, uh, you know, beachhead, snake eyes, of course. Uh, but it was something that I could bond with my brother who was, you know, five years older than me. And I, I could bond with my father over them as well. So my, my parents never had any hesitation buying G.I. Joe's for me. I, I used to always stretch my allowance. Um, I had a really skewed concept of money because I would get a dollar every week and we would go to KB Toys and uh, what were the figures were what three four bucks individually back then? Yeah, they were like three dollars in yeah. change, about three bucks. Yeah. So I'd say, hey, you uh, know, I miss those days. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do extra chores if you pitch in another two bucks. And you know, if I was with my dad, I was okay. But we used to dig these. You know, Rob, like you said, in your front yard. Um, I used to dig these um, tiered kind of coliseum into the dirt in my front yard and uh i am also a 3d artist i i work with greg but um engineering and architecting these uh elaborate sets for for the joes because i didn't have the big um you know the platform or geez the, the flag we didn't have room for that but yeah that really shaped my kind of love and passion for building and construction, constructing things. You could uh, have actually moved into the USS flag. <laughs> it's, yeah. Like, why do you, why Over do you need a house? Yeah. I, you know, I didn't have any friends who had that. <laughs> nah. was, was that an urban legend? Come on. You can tell us now. <laughs> What's that? Well, no. So was the flag an urban legend? Did anyone actually have it? Oh, no. oh yeah. Plenty of kids had it. <laughs> um, but if you are ever in Norfolk, Virginia, and you are on Maycox Avenue, a little gray house on the corner, you could probably find dozens of G.I. Joes buried in the yard, huh. including a lot of my favorites. But yeah, think about what archaeologists are going to think of us. <laughs> they were playing with these tiny men that could hold things in their hands. Yeah. Okay, Kirk. So uh, now you kind of know a little bit of our background with with the toy line, and um, want to know a little bit about your background. Uh, just you know what led up to your position with Hasbro, your career path, and how did the whole you know the product get launched? Okay. Um, well, I I I started at Hasbro. Um, you know, pretty much out of out of graduate school. I went to graduate school for advertising, and um, had started a career in advertising before I. Saw an opportunity to join Hasbro in their advertising department, um, and I looked at it as a as a uh, pretty much a dream career. 
um, a company I'd always obviously had some interest in since I was a little kid. Uh, I grew up not too far from the Hasbro factory. Um, my father ran a small variety store and um, over the years carried a number of Hasbro toys. So, so I was quite familiar with, with the company um, as a, a fan of toys. Um, so I went to work for Hasbro as a copywriter and uh, quickly saw the uh, movers and shakers in the company were the uh, people who worked in marketing. Um, and so I, I, you know, within about a year, year and a half of starting at Hasbro, um, uh, befriended um, a few people in the marketing department. Bob Prupus, my first uh, boss and who later became my uh, chief mentor and a very close friend, um, and I worked together on a, a number of, uh, you know, new concepts. And um, uh, one day, you know, we, we were working uh, on this idea of trying to bring back G.I. Joe. Um, Joe had been off the market for maybe four years and um, uh, Bob had been a toy buyer at a uh, chain of stores called Two Guys, which was a, a chain that um, pretty much middle Atlantic chain up to through New York into Connecticut. And um, he was a toy buyer and had been familiar with the success of the original 12 inch G.I. Joe. Um, and so he, he always saw it as a unique opportunity for Hasbro. Which at the time was a floundering company. I mean, at at the time, I'm talking 1980, 1979. Uh, Hasbro was pretty much uh, a, a company known as Has Been. Uh, was pretty much going out of business. Oh wow! Yeah, it was a company that was you know like one step away from going bankrupt. Um, I think our annual sales, uh, the year I joined the company in in 1978, were like 75 million dollars, and I think. Uh, you know, we had expense expenses of about eighty three million at the time. Jeez. So yeah, the company was 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 uh, was doing poorly. Um, Bob saw Jeez. an opportunity with the uh, reintroduction of GI Joe as a way of um, maybe setting Hasbro back on course. And you know, his, his attitude always was no guts, no glory, um, and was able to convince uh, our senior management that the time to bring GI Joe might be now. And, uh, and so he and I both, you know, worked with our R and D group, um, to pull together, um, presentations that we thought might bring, uh, GI Joe back. So that was all over the course of, uh, 1980, 1981. Uh, and of course we reintroduced Joe in 1982. Um, but what most people don't understand is it takes at least a year to a year and a half to, um, uh, get a toy line up and running. And um, we had started work on Joe in, in uh, early 1980. Uh, the story I like to tell is um, it, was at, it was at the uh, Winter Olympics when um, the Americans defeated the Soviet Union. Uh, it was a, a sweeping, uh, you know, sense of patriotism in the country. And Bob, Bob really felt the time was right to bring back G.I. Joe. And we made a presentation to our management team and uh, we were pretty much laughed out of the room because um, the company didn't have the funds to support the tooling, nor did they feel we had the right um, way of marketing G.I. Joe. So, um, you know, our, our boss at the time, Stephen Hassenfeld, uh, told us um, to put, put a plan together that was more thought out and uh, he'd reconsider his decision not to go forward. And so we spent the next 
you know, three, four months working on that. And then, you know, the rest is history. That's a amazing and great timing. I could only imagine the the lead up to those times being remarkably nerve wracking. Oh, it was. Yeah. I mean, it was always I mean, the toy business is is a nerve wracking business to begin with, but it's always still a lot of fun. And, um, you know, Bob and I work closely with our advertising agency uh, to pull this off and we were able to do it. So I have to ask, how accurate was that meeting portrayed in the documentary, The Toys That Made Us? Oh, it was, I mean, they, they talked to me about that and um, I still haven't written a review of that series yet. Um, and that's my biggest complaint about, um, I mean, not that, that uh, episode, uh, G.I. Joe episode is, is a, a very good episode. I mean, it really covers um, act- everything that happened except that except for that meeting and then and the funny thing is they had asked me so much detailed information about the conference room and who would have been in the room and and um you know what did people look like and uh, my biggest complaint is the portrayal of Stephen Hassenfeld um and they make him look like this you know nerdy looking guy with you know glasses five times the size you know yeah, look like yeah, was, like Mr. Cotter or something. <laughs> and his shirt collar hanging over his sport coat. Stephen was a very sharp dresser and um, very, um, you know, uh, uh, pristine and uh, a snappy dresser. And, um, you know, he just didn't look like that at all. And, and that was my biggest complaint. They made him look like a goof. Um, along with the guy who portrayed uh, Joe Bacall, uh, Joe is like a... a maybe five set five eight five nine and about 130 pounds you know uh and they made this guy who portrayed him as this big bulky guy um you know i I don't know i I don't know what they were thinking but you know i mean the 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 um event that they tried to portray is is the way it happened pretty close to the way it happened but they, they definitely took dramatic license with what they were trying to do that episode, that episode is fun, but I'm you know coming from an educational background. I in a way, I, like I'd much rather have like an eight hour documentary of every little part of that process yeah. than than little vignettes. But it definitely brought back some awesome memories. Yeah, there's a moment in the reenactment where Joe holds up a book and Stephen says, "Why aren't you holding up a comic book?" It's at a did you guys think, wow, this is it? Because my heart dropped. No, no, no. Um, you know, that's the other thing. Um, when Stephen in that um, episode says something like, well, how come I'm not, you're not showing me a comic book? You know, Stephen wasn't a smart ass like that either. He could be pretty, he could be pretty demanding and pretty uh, um, uh, cutting in his comments, but he never would have said anything like that because he knew he was more than more than aware that what what Joe was trying to do was just selling the concept. Um, at the time of that meeting, at the time of that meeting, um, Joe had had a believe a preliminary meeting with Marvel Comics, um, and uh, nothing had been you know locked in because we didn't know if we were going to be given the opportunity to go forward. So I think he might have had a preliminary meeting with Marvel to say, hey, if uh, we can get the go-ahead. Is this something you'd be interested in? And why would Marvel turn down a million dollars in advertising to advertise to advertise a comic book, the first comic book ever advertised on television? Um, they wouldn't. 
But, you know, he was playing his cards right. You know, hey, look, you know, we, we don't have approval yet. And so he used, and, and therefore he didn't have Marvel go ahead and do any spec work on creating a cover or, or anything like that. Um, so the plain, you know, red book, uh, you know, the, we didn't even know what the book was. It was just a red book. Um, so I have to say that there was an absolute strike of genius with the marketing because from what I understand, what the episode said was that you couldn't have in your commercials, you couldn't have more than 10 seconds of animation to promote your product for a toy, but there were no limitations on comic books. Is, is that correct? I mean, could you not have more than 10 seconds? Yeah, like that. I always forget the exact number. It was certainly less than 10 seconds. So I have to ask, because I was such a huge fan of the show Chips, why did you guys grab the Chips figures instead of the Star Wars figures? I mean, if you guys were going to replicate the Star Wars figure success, why didn't you guys just use those? Nope. Nope. The reason for using the Chips figures was very simple. We uh, had a total disdain for the Star Wars figures. Um, for To us, as designers, and I'm speaking of myself as a quasi-designer, uh, the Star Wars figures were slugs of plastic that virtually did nothing. Um, and when you looked at the heritage of G.I. Joe, uh, the 12-inch G.I. Joe was a fully posable modern army figure. That's what it said on all the packaging and all the advertising. It had over 21 points of articulation. Um, we wanted to replicate at least as much as possible the posability of that original 12-inch figure. And so when we went and looked to um, see how we could, you know, get our point across in a meeting, um, one of our designers um, had purchased a bunch of, um, we were always buying competitive products to take it apart and analyze it. Um, he uh, bought a bunch of Chips figures, but it wasn't just Chips figures. Migo had also made uh, Buck Rogers figures. Um, and so some of the early G.I. Joe figures that we cobbled together with clay and made them look like um, military figures were, were not just the Chips figures, but also Buck Rogers figures. And and they had the uh, the points of articulation that um, we felt kind of captured um, the the same spirit of the 12-inch articulation. So that was a deliberate um, call on our part. And uh, and also, like I say, we, we had total disdain for those Star Wars figures. <laughs> So yeah, I was never really a big fan of the the Star Wars figures myself. I always thought they were, you know, kind of inferior toys. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't really pose them at the waist. You couldn't. I mean, they had so many limitations. And um, uh, and you also have to understand too that you know when GI Joe came out, Star Wars had already been out for three years, and or two years anyway. But I think closer to three. And there was a. a uh, one of the reasons Joe was able to gain an early foothold was because the retailers, the toy buyers, were uh, being pressured by Kenner. Um, if you want to get your quantity of Star Wars figures, you have to commit to buy, um, you know, uh, Sally Wetzer Pants doll uh, they might have hated. Uh, and you have to buy... Um, you know, this other toy line, they, they had a line of uh, uh, vehicles that competed against Hot Wheels called Fast Ones. And it was like three ones. And everyone thought it was Fast 111s. When it, 
I've never heard of that. When, when really, yeah, when really one the name of the concept was Fast Ones. Well, they were they were blackmailing the trade um, with you know uh, holding Star Wars over their head as a le- as a lever. Um, and so you know Bob realized this. He had talked to his friends still in the toy business, and when we came out with GI Joe, the trade was more than happy to give us some shelf space because they wanted to. Um, you break the hold that Star Wars had over them, and uh, that that had a little bit of that contributed a little bit to the success of GI Joe as well. Was was the arrogance of the uh, Kenner, uh, you know, sales department? Eventually went to Hasbro, right? Well, Ken, ha, ha, Hasbro eventually bought Kenner, but yeah, no, at this time it was Kenner making Star Wars figures. Uh, I actually have a quote. You kind of touched on it, but um, I always thought it was so interesting the differences between the comic, the TV show, and the toy line. Um, who drove the creative on that? Like, because there were differences to some extent, you know, especially in tone. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, definitely in tone. Um, well, the toy line drove everything. Um, and but what we uh, what we allowed was um, we also felt that each medium had its own requirements. And um, Bob, I remember saying, said to me one time, you know, don't be so uh, religious as to um uh, make the making the comic book look exactly like the toys, and don't be so religious that the TV show looks exactly like the toys and the comic book. Let each medium, you know, um, uh, deliver the best possible product, and let the story be the king. And um, and you know, I took that to heart, and uh, we allowed a lot of creative license on the part of Marvel Marvel artists and. Uh, and the um, Marvel Productions Animation Studios to, uh, you know, inject their own uh, special creativity to the toy line. Um, the only thing we did insisted on was that, you know, the characters had to bear some uh, basic resemblance to our toy line because we were using both the comic and animation to sell the toys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, no- I noticed that too on some of them, like you'd watch the TV show and maybe the vehicles would be slightly bigger sure, sure. You know, f- figure compartment than the toy or something like that. And it was, you know, even as a young kid, I was like, that's kind of neat. Um, although I did constantly look for a um, broadcast energy transmitter toy, which never was a thing. <laughs> and I, if you put one out, well, if they put one out tomorrow, I would be at the store. There were some actual pretty popular characters I noticed in the comic line, um, like the October Guard and Quinn, um, yep. that did not become toys until much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so were those developed outside of, of Hasbro? Yeah, those were, those were the brainchild of uh, Larry Hama. Um, and, uh, maybe, I don't know at the time who the artist was, I think it was Herb Trimpey was, was draw, uh, uh, drawing G.I. Joe at the time. And he came up with Quinn, um, the October guard, I think was also a Herb Trimpey creation along with Larry. Um, and while, you know, I wanted to do those, uh, as part of our line, um, the, the problem was one of, it was a business relationship, um, deal. Uh, our lawyers never wanted us to do it at the time because they couldn't figure out a way of structuring a royalty payment to Marvel. Um, you know, while Marvel had the opportunity to create whatever they wanted for the line, and they did create some things, um, we we were never able to do them as toys simply because of a, whether who who had the rights, who owned the rights to the idea. So we let them use them in the comic book. It helped. For, you know, again, uh, carry a storyline through the comic book, um, but we we were just never going to make the toys. 
Now, how they were able to make the toys, re- and I say recently, like within the last five years, I have no clue because I haven't been at Hasbro in so long. Yeah, it's a, it also seems like a slippery slope. It's, you know, all of a sudden Marvel creates a character and that's they're going to start replacing the, yeah. the yeah, toy characters I, with all the stuff I, they I, created. I mean, that they was something I don't think ever would have happened, after. although, you know, our attorneys probably looked at it that way. And, you know, uh, but I think we missed an opportunity yeah. to, you know, inject um, some pretty interesting characters into the line as well. Uh, one of the things I, I remember very specifically that I loved was building the toys when I got them, you know, opening up the package and all that. And then like later on, it didn't like, you don't build them anymore. I've noticed when you go, when I go pick up toys for my kids or for my kid, it's, you know, they're already pre-built. Um, was that kind of part of what you guys were doing, like making it so you had the kids had to build the toys? Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that people don't realize is that when we first came out with GI Joe, uh, G.I. Joe was not an action figure line. Um, G.I. Joe, we, we always thought, was an action vehicle line. And the figures were accessories to the vehicles. And so when we were able to pack a lot of value into our boxes because Hasbro had a factory here in Rhode Island that, um, I mean, we were experts at molding plastic. Um, and when you can mold plastic as efficiently as we could, and you didn't have to put the plastic together you could just put the pieces in a box and have the kids supply the labor which was free to us um, <laughs> you, could, nice. you, could, you could put Fantastic. out toys that had so much more play value than star wars or uh any other brand in the market uh all the other brands were being made mostly in the far east and um you know, assembly in the Far East, the labor in the Far East is so uh, inexpensive. Um, but we were e- even less expensive than that because our labor was free. You guys were putting them together. You were our labor force. And, uh, you know, that was another part of our plan. Um, pack a lot of value in the product. Um, make them make the things look as realistic as a model kit. And quite honestly, I believe we contributed to the demise of the model kit business. Because um, kids could buy, you know, or get a G.I. Joe toy and in 10 minutes snap it all together. And they had a great model kit that they could actually play with. Yep. It was built durable and built to last. But, yeah, but as, as time went on yeah, it wouldn't snap um, and we started to move stuff over to the Far East, um, it made sense to have a lot of the toys assembled uh, because they looked better in the, in the packaging. Uh, they look better in the box, and and we also started adding a lot more mm-hmm. um, toy features, whether it was uh, motorized, um, you know, motors and uh, spring-fired missiles. Those are things that you can't have a kid assemble; you have to assemble in a factory. So um, it just made more sense to, to convert over to that. Right. But, yeah, the original, and then also by uh, 1988, the line had shifted from being an action vehicle line. To where we were now doing more of our sales in uh, figures, so it became the action figure line that everybody thought it was. So it's just a little bit of a semantic difference, but it did have an effect on uh, how we planned our business. Actually, you, you mentioned something that brought up another question that I didn't put on my questions list, but you mentioned the the spring loaded missiles. Uh huh. I very distinctly remember a little warning on every single one of the packages when I was a kid. Uh, you know, weapon does not shoot. Um, right. And now you can't go out and buy a toy that doesn't say weapon really shoots. <laughs> Those were my favorite. <laughs> so, um, was there actually a situation that, 
that made it so that you guys had to, you know, felt like you had to put that warning on the box? Were there like parents that were like, nope, sorry. No, no. Well, early on, parents hated the idea of G.I. Joe. Um, G.I. Joe was a war toy and we can't have our little six-year-old playing with war toys. So, so. I, I remember the banner from the documentary that says, you know, do not support war toys. Dang hippies. (laughs) Our our management, senior management, seen me being Steven Hassenfeld primarily said, we will never have our toys shoot weapons. Um, And we would put, we will put that on the, front of our packaging. So, okay, we made all these great, exciting-looking vehicles with rockets shooting and guns blazing, but then we always had this legal disclaimer that said, weapons do not shoot. Well, that was great when we were, you know, at the top of the heap, but along about 1987, 1988, uh, a band of four crazy teenagers uh, in the shape of turtles um, came out, and they started to have all kinds of spring-fired weapons and spring-fired disc launchers, etc. <laughs> and they that pizza thing. They cleaned our clock for two years, um, and so I was able to convince management when I was brought back onto the brand that hey, you know, if you want to con- keep this brand alive, we've got to make changes, and one of those changes means we have to start making toys, not model kits in a box. And toys means they have to do things. And the simplest thing we can have our figures do is have guns that really shoot. And that launched the whole second wave of uh, G.I. Joe success. Now, were there uh-huh. were there any ever any issues involved with like with uh, safety or or any issues that where you had kids that got hurt from from any of the toys? Because, I, I mean, I, I remember I, I've seen a couple of the um, couple of the documentaries, and that was actually one of the reasons why they took the Boba Fett firing rocket away. Um, yeah, because that's, that's once again, Kenner was dumb. There's a, there's a, there's a thing known as a, the thing known as a small parts gauge. Gotcha. And okay. all you have to do is make sure that the part you make doesn't go down a kid's throat. The gauge simulates the, uh, diameter and the, uh, shape of a kid's larynx. Okay. And you have to make sure that the part is bigger than that gauge. Oh. The Boba Fett part oh. was like, uh, the size of a uh, chiclet, and you know, could, you know, any kid could swallow it. Uh, none of our weapons, none of our missiles were that small. They were always oversized, which is one of the things people criticize. You know, the GI Joe. Why is he carrying such a large gun? Well, because <laughs> big guns look cool. That's you know, right. You needed <laughs> you needed a big gun to shoot a big missile. Yeah, you know, I I never thought about that until this moment. Where you know you'd have uh, the handheld kind of spring-loaded rocket launcher, uh-huh. and they they were always oversized. Um, I just thought they were damn cool. Yeah, but you know, but that also, it also that makes sense. Yeah, but it also it's a practical. So now you know, and knowing's half the battle. GI right. Joe. <laughs> yes, that right there was the greatest moment of my life. I can go now. <laughs> I'm. Z- I'm still quoting that at work, by the way. I walk past people and they say something and they say, well, now I know. And I stop and I go, and knowing is half the battle. Oh, yeah. Rob is a nurse, so that actually, that it actually is half it the battle. It totally is. No, I, was, I wish I had one of those small parts gauges myself because uh, not too long ago, my child swallowed a penny at, during a funeral of all things. So. You know, I, I actually believe you can, you can, you can buy them at um, like a Babies R Us. 
Oh, wow. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can. And if not, just go on Amazon. Uh, guaranteed you can buy them. They're only like a couple of bucks. They're a clear, it's a clear tube with a uh, diagonal um, uh, insert in it that simulates, like I say, a child's throat. And um, hmm. I think uh, I think the rushing to the emergency room at like nine at night kept him from ever wanting to put anything not food in his mouth again. So we're <laughs> we're crossing our fingers on that one. Yeah. Well, like I say, they do it once and it never happens again. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna jump down. Well, well real to... real quick, I, I I would like to go back and touch on one of the questions that we've already kind of talked about because you had mentioned that um that you had let like Marvel and the cartoon universe kind of direct their own direct their own direction for the for the show and the story and everything. Um, but what I wanted to find out was, were there any reservations or any uh, dissension when you guys found out that they were essentially killing off some of the characters? Um, no, we were, we were part of the, we were involved in that. Oh, okay. So we were involved. So like the G.I. Joe 109, yeah. it comes to mind we, for me. I don't remember that's shocking. the specific issue or the specific character, but uh, part of my job early on and then later on as I was promoted, my the people who worked for me, we, we would get the Marvel... Um, scripts um, mm-hmm. about three months before the comic book would actually um, start being penciled. And then we would get the penciled issues about two months before they would become printed books. Um, and we would, we would make comments and give Marvel feedback. Um, so I had, you know, direct communication to uh, Larry Hama uh, on, on everything. And while Larry was the editor, I always felt I was the editor of the editor. So, <laughs> nice. um, yeah, no, we were we were totally involved in any decision that Larry made on what he wanted to do and what direction he wanted to take the the comic. Same thing with the animation. Um, mm-hmm. If we saw something we didn't want to have happened uh, to the Joe brand, we had the opportunity to veto it, um, and we rarely did that. Because one of the things I remember about the cartoon was that they they were notoriously everybody in the cartoon were like stormtroopers where they they couldn't hit anything. There were there were always like lasers f- flying all around. <laughs> A guy would stand up and go, "We need to go that way," and like lasers would like miss his arm every which way. And it's like, what is going on? I don't. Know. But my next question would be: Was where were the were the deaths of the characters, did they affect the sales of those characters at all? Or did it just give you um, license to make more characters? I mean, I guess you didn't really need license to make more characters. But did, did the did the characters who died see any spike in sales? Uh, I don't... Oh, you stumped them. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I mean, if the character was... We would know if the character was going to die months ahead of when we will be ordering the characters. Right. So what we would do is we would stop ordering the characters as part of our assortment. So it, it was if a character died, okay. the character mm. died. Oh, and they were kind of removed from circulation. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, wow. whatever, whatever was in the marketplace was in the marketplace, but you know, we, we wouldn't continue making them wow. in the factory. So was, was that maybe a time when a version change would happen? Mm-hmm character would kind of get redesigned or was that a certain cyclical kind of thing? Yeah, it could be, uh, could be, could be that. I mean, um, a lot of the version changes were done to save tooling, um, you know, to, to uh, invest tooling in newer characters, but taking an, an older character and, you know, 
making a Frankenstein out of that character. You know, what collectors call a Frankenstein, where you, you know, I'm sure you guys know where you combine parts mm-hmm. from one guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Frankenstein characters, or you just change up the paint operations. Um, all of that can be, you know, saves you on tooling, but then still gives you the opportunity to call something somebody new. So, I mean, it was just all a, 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 a mixture of all those kinds of things that went into the keeping the the brand vital and alive. Uh, you mentioned something that about the, the rockets and stuff firing on the packaging. Um, the package artwork is still some of the most beautiful package artwork, period. Like, I don't think anything's beaten it yet. Um, was that the same artist throughout the whole line? Pretty much. Um, the figure arts was done by a, a, a gentleman named Hector Garrido. And um, Hector was a, a an illustrator out of New York City, well, n- near New York City, I guess. Um, and he did uh, all of the character art until about 1988. And then we started bringing a lot of the character art inside. We had hired a very talented uh, freelance artist who then eventually came on staff, a guy by the name of Doug Hart. And um, Doug did all the character art uh at first imitating Hector's style and then, uh, you know, developing his own unique style um, that simulated, you know, Hector's. Hector was an older man by um, by the time he finished working on the Joe brand. My guess is uh, Hector had to be well into his 70s, maybe early 80s when he when he was still working on the G.I. Joe oh, wow. Uh, art. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And um, Doug took it over and, um, you know, continued it. Uh, from like 19, I'm going to say 88 through 94. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that artwork is amazing. I just loved, I mean, I, the, nothing was longer than the ride home from the store <laughs> for me. Yeah. Just, and so I just kept on looking at the box and my parents were like, you know, if you open it up in here, you're going to lose parts, that kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> and, and I remember just looking at the box and reading the back as to where all the, everything was outlined and stuff like that. Now, Hector did a lot of the pack, you know, the box art as well, not just the figure art, but but then there were other variety of other artists who who jumped in and did a lot of the vehicle art as well. None as well known as Hector. Jimmy, you had a question. Go. I do have a question. Um, this, I guess, concerns a uh, author that I am a very passionate, a huge fan about. I wanted to ask you about the Stephen King connection with sure. GI Joe. Yeah. Where did how did that collaboration come about in, in designing crystal ball and, you know, naming a, a, a figure after his son? Okay. First of all, there was no collaboration. Okay. Uh, Stephen King's son, uh, I guess liked GI Joe wrote us, wrote us mm-hmm. or had his father write us a fan letter. Um, I remember. And those. yeah. And, 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 and I guess it was Stephen King who told us, you know, wrote a very nice fan letter describing how, you know, his, his son enjoyed playing with G.I. Joe, etc. So um, we packed up a bunch of G.I. Joe product and sent it to him um, as a way of just, you know, saying, hey, thanks. Um, glad you're a fan. And then um, somebody in R&D, most likely I think Ron Rudat, who was designing the figures at the time, um, decided, why don't we do a, uh, you know, uh, like a crazy, you know, mad scientist, whatever kind of character. And, um, hence crystal ball came into being. Um, and, and that was the extent of quote, the collaboration. Um, and it's become a huge piece of, you know, like urban myth. Okay. Um, and not really a myth. I mean, you know, Stephen King was a fan. We, we reciprocated the fan, 
uh, fandom by, you know, uh, thanking him and giving him some uh, product, but he had nothing to do with the guy's bio or, or anything like that. Okay. I, I imagine. At least, at least not to my knowledge that, you know, he, he didn't contribute to it. Yeah. I imagine if Stephen King named the character or, or wrote the bio, it would have, uh, maybe been not approved. Uh, yeah. I mean, if we were going to do pin or the October guard, we certainly weren't going to do anything that Stephen King created for us. <laughs> I think that leads us right in some of the, the quick question or semi quick questions. Um, so what are the weirdest character and vehicle ideas that in your mind that you were like shocked that went through and became like popular sellers? Well, I don't know that they, I mean, I can't, I can't think of many. I mean, the, the, for me, the weirdest character we ever did was, uh, Galobulus. Oh, I love Galobulus. Oh, he's he's the one with the snake tail, isn't he? They said he was shaped like a carrot in the documentary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely hate that character. Um, uh, but that was, again, that was something that Joe Bacall uh, foisted on us because he was such a big part of the uh, G.I. Joe movie. Um, so, and Cobra Law. Oh, my God, did I hate all of those Cobra Law figures as well. Um but you know that's just me. That's just personal preference. Um, but I can't think of anything else. I, I know when I saw that question, uh, I, I I was stumped because I honestly can't think of. I mean, we did so many designs that never saw the light of day. Um, you know, our R and D staff was just churning out sketches and ideas constantly. Um, and I'm sure there's a hundred other ideas that I could, if I could remember them, I'd let you know. But I honestly can't. How did you guys balance, uh, you know, playability with you know military feasibility? Um, uh, we, we always knew that you know we always positioned GI Joe as the military of the future. So um, we always felt that GI Joe was like the testing ground or the training ground for new technology. Hmm. Um, and so um, you know, we we always felt we had an open ended way of of uh, creating things that just maybe quasi looked military. But they didn't have to really be military, you know. That kind of the the open endedness of the of the line. And uh, of course, I think I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about uh, the good old character Law. Oh yeah, my favorite. <laughs> my personal favorite. Yeah. That that's actually one of my favorites as well because I I have a big thing for dogs. So any, anything any toy that came with a dog, yeah. I had it. I I always liked the ones that came with the dogs because it was like you were getting two toys for yeah. one. I mean. You're exactly right. Yeah, well, we always saw that any figure that, and it was by pure, purely by accident, um, you know, a figure that came with a, with a quote, pet, um, it was just some extra little piece of value that kids appreciated. So, I mean, we did parrots, we did dolphins, we did, uh, we did wolves, we did uh, uh, dogs, you know. But, but, an alligator. Yeah, an alligator, yeah, you're right. And, and uh, it was a falcon or a, yeah, there was a vulture. A warthog. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, Nogahide. Nogahide. Remember him? Nogahide. Yeah, yeah. We we had some fun with those animals. Spirit, and, the uh, eagle. You know. And and on a on a uh, similar note, um, there there was actually a um, I don't know if you're familiar with the show Robot Chicken, but they actually did a little like like five minute uh, skit on a, the GI Joe pets because <laughs> the the show Robot Chicken is based on like all the toys that we grew I'm, up with as kids. I'm quite familiar um, with it. I, and, and they did like a like a five minute skit on the GI Joe pets and how the GI Joe pets joined uh-huh. battle and how it went how it went very very That's poorly. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it it went very poorly for Spirit. 
for me. Um, I can remember yeah. the day I, I lived down the street from a, was it maybe K and K before it was KB toys where I got spirit one day, you know, by adding a little bit extra to my allowance and got them home, threw them in my pocket, went to uh, jump over the fence uh, to go to my friend James's house. And he just shattered uh, in my back pocket. It, it may have just been a rubber band thing, but I, I think yeah. his leg broke off. Oh, but, man. Uh, I, I was devastated and I didn't want to tell my parents that, you know, the day I got spirit, he broke in my back pocket. So I wrapped him up in toilet paper and, and buried him. <laughs> and we never mentioned it again. 30 years later, that's when that uh, ar- archaeologist is going to find yeah, maybe him. Maybe about 28. Yes, yeah, we're talking about individual figures and stuff. Do you know any, um, is there any stories behind some of the more iconic figures, you know, like how they came about? Is there um, any that spring to mind? You know, it, uh, Again, you know, the, the way the characters were developed were we turned our, you know, we would turn R&D loose. Um, Ron Rudat was our primary figure designer, and then he eventually turned the reins over to a younger artist named Mark Pennington, uh, who went on to do some comic, a lot of comic book work. Um, Mark still does a lot of comic book work and does his own freelance art now. Um, and then and that eventually got turned over to another artist by the name of Kurt Groen, who did all the um, you know, uh, figures. Um, and so we would just leave those guys alone and let them come up with ideas. And then, uh, we, Bob and I would meet with them or eventually I would meet with them as I took over the brand from Bob. Um, and, uh, we'd start combining and mixing and match, uh, matching. But the only thing I would lay out as a strategy for, for the guys was I always wanted to see a mixture of, um, uh, sea, air and land, so not while they, they weren't all Navy SEALs, I wanted to make sure that we had in our mixture of uh, figures each year, uh, figures that represented the Navy, figures that represented uh, the Army and the Marine Corps, and figures that represented uh, the Air Corps, uh, you know, the Air Force. And um, uh, and that's that was the general guideline that I would give them. And then uh, I always insisted each year that we have at least one, if not two or three guys that were as close to realistic military, if you will, mm-hmm. um, and then go crazy with whatever else you want to do. Seems like okay. that harkens back to the the original, the twelve inch GI Joe. We're making sure that every yeah. branch. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we always, you know, we. Always, I grew up playing with that twelve inch GI Joe, mm-hmm. uh, so I knew what it was, what the heritage was, and um, so I always wanted to do that. That's why. You know, my favorite figures were always the figures that looked more military than anything else. Those were kind of mine as well. Um, in in your your beachhead, your Falcon, right. you know, Flint. I, I I loved Beachhead for a weird reason that he had baggy pants. Uh-huh. Um, and he was he just seemed so much different than than all the others. But I gravitated toward those as well. Yeah. I I actually also liked Beachhead, but it was for a completely different reason. I liked Beachhead because he looked kind of more like the ninjas that I yeah. couldn't get because I couldn't find him anywhere. <laughs> right. Um I, I was just curious. Um during during the whole process of G.I. Joe, um was there was there anything that that as it as it unfolded, you were like, oh, man, I re- I really wish we hadn't have done that. Like were there any big missteps that if you had the opportunity to go back and change that you that you would? Um, uh, yeah, um, uh, along about, I guess, 91, maybe 92, somewhere in there, 
another mm-hmm. upstart company hit the marketplace uh, called McFarlane Toys. Mm. Yep. Oh boy. And, mm-hmm. and uh, McFarlane with with his Spawn uh, characters, yep, redefined the way to sculpt action figure toys. And I had bought some of them. Something most people don't know is we we at Hasbro. I was part of a group of people who actually McFarlane was early on was going bankrupt, um, and uh, I was part of a. A committee that went and visited with his factory and and uh, his investors, and we were going to try to buy um, McFarlane toys, but eventually, oh wow, you know, that that deal fell through, um, and he was able to come out of. He found new investors, etc., um, and he's gone on to you know tremendous success, obviously. But um, but his his figures, although they were larger than GI Joe, um, they 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 took figure sculpting to a new level and i was trying to get our r&d team to um uh, change the way we sculpt sculpted gi joe um as when i look back on our figures and i know you guys appreciate them and i do too but i look back at a lot of our figures that we did and i say how did we get away with selling this guy um you know (laughs) when i described star wars figures as being lumps of plastic um and slugs of plastic. Um, we weren't that much better um, for some of our characters because you know we were using. We must have been using seven or eight different sculptors to get the lines done, uh, based because of the number of characters we had to do. And some of those sculptors were better than others. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I just felt McFarlane had set a new standard, and that we should try to be replicating that standard and make our characters look more super heroic in scale. Um, if you know uh, uh, anything about um, uh, anatomy and, and all, if, uh, you know, like a superhero is like, what, eight eight heads high and a normal like six and a half heads high or something. Yeah. Um, I wanted our characters to look more super heroic, smaller head, broader shoulders, kind of like what the newer G.I. Joe uh, figures look like. Um you know, I was trying to do that back in 1990. Okay. Uh, and I could never get our R&D team and our engineers off the dime uh, to do that. It was always too much work, and we don't have enough time to do it, et cetera. And um, I just always felt that maybe I should have been much more insistent, you know, blown the whole lineup uh, one year. and and you know, But I, I just never did it. That's my, that's my fault. That's on me. But mm. um, that's, that's my biggest regret. Okay. Um, one last little question I threw on there, uh, just based on the fact that all you know, all three of us are very fondly remembering our toys, and I, honestly, looking back, I don't remember playing with any other toy other than my Legos. And did you got do? Did you, as a marketer, like understand, like, or know why GI Joe seemed to hold that spot in a lot of kids' memories? Like, I remember the exact scenarios that I made up. Um, did you guys think about that in marketing, or did you know that this toy was going to hold such lasting memories? Not really. I think it's still a surprise to us or to me. Um, but I think it, it all has to do with maybe the position that we had for G.I. Joe, a real American hero. And that word real, I think, is what separated us. And if you go back and think about what that Netflix show talked about, where the actor portraying Joe Bacall kind of scoffed at the idea of, you know, the fantasy of Star Wars, we were going to do a real 
American hero. Yeah. Instead of the force. Yeah. I really think that idea of reality to a kid really hit home to kids. And I think they imagined, um, hey, you know, these are soldiers and I can relate to soldiers. These are vehicles that kind of look like the real thing I see on the news or I see in magazines. And I can relate to that. And I think that uh, had some played a big role in the longevity of the brand G.I. Joe is that it's so much rooted in reality. Yeah. No, I, you know, my father was in the Navy. Uh, he, um, left active duty. I, I was probably four or five years old, but I, I, I can remember that time, you know, seeing, you know, Hey, that's kind of like my dad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, I couldn't relate that to star Wars or even, you know, what, and, a few years old, even Ninja Turtles. I mean, my dad wasn't a turtle. <laughs> right. You know, he was in the Navy. Right. He was an officer. So, yeah, I mean, that's that had I could that connect played a role. That. certainly played a role. Yeah. Actually, my dad was in the Army, um, and he he didn't talk much about it. There's no no, tra- no trauma. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't the best time in his right. life. And so he never talked about it. But I remember when I got the bridge layer, oh. that was the first time he ever told a story. And he had... Oh, I remember that. He had lost one of those very expensive bridges down a ravine because he didn't yeah. attach it right. So it was gone. Basically just fell into a ravine. Thankfully no one got hurt, but he was like, he's like, yeah, that thing should be sold with a, uh, a laundry machine, whatever the laundry duty machine on the field was, because that's what they had him on for the next <laughs> yeah. month because he had screwed up. <laughs> that's a funny story. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, um, did you guys have any more questions? No, I, you know, I had a question if there were any other figures inspired by celebrities or, you know, we see Sergeant Slaughter, see, you know, the fridge, um, or, you know, laws inspired by you, Thrasher, you know, some of those other figures, were there any others? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the G.I. Joe figures were based on people who worked at Hasbro. Um, the list is too long for me to remember Every yeah, tunnel rat yeah was Larry Larry Hama yeah, but I mean, mm-hmm. um, yeah we we again we experimented with lots of things. I mean the, the story of you know Sylvester Stallone was going to be a GI Joe until he went and did a deal with Coleco Toys and did his line of Rambo toys, and we had to quickly uh, quickly cancel that deal. Uh, mm. uh, you know, um, we actually you know had designs for a John Wayne figure, um, but it never never went anywhere um so we were you know our our team r&d team was like i say constantly you know pushing the boundaries of you know what we could do creatively um and uh i can't think of you know i can't think of any others really but um uh, yeah that's a pretty pretty good list i guess to think about that you know a lot of the characters that you see dial tone was a guy named roger avery um uh was Scoop based off of anyone in particular? I uh, don't recall. Don't recall. Okay. Scoop was one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. We, yeah, 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 yeah. Scoop was based off of NBC TV reporter Mike Leonard. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah Mike nice. is a uh, uh, fellow Providence College grad like myself. Um, he did a uh, came to Hasbro one time and did a uh, uh, news piece on uh, the creation of G.I. Joe. And and interviewed me and other people. And, you know, it was like a three to five minute piece for NBC news. 
and uh, we made a character called Scoop for him. Why was Raptor a um, – that, that yeah. was the name of the Falcon guy, right? Like the shirt the – shirt, why was he an accountant? Because I, I, I really distinctly remember that because my father, after being in the military, was an accountant. Um, I feel so sorry for you. <laughs> this is very true. Very true. <laughs> but w- did not ever walk around shirtless wearing a bird costume. But they all want know. to see secret. But that's how they wanted you. That. <laughs> gotcha. That's very. That's very accurate. I have, Just. I have no clue why why he was an accountant. Nice. <laughs> okay, so. As you guys know, this show is called the Give Me Five Podcast, and we, of course, at the end of every episode, ask a question about five favorite things or five something. Uh, This time we're going to do two questions while we have Kirk on the air here. And uh, the first question is going to be, what are your five favorite figures or characters? Um, Sure. Okay. Uh, You want them in, how do you want, what order do you want them in? First, my top favorite to my least not my least favorite, but my your your fifth favorite to your first favorite. Oh, okay. So my fifth favorite character would be Snake Eyes. Um, my fourth favorite would be Hit and Run. Oh, I love that character. Yep. My third would be Grunt. My uh, fourth would be, or my second, I guess, would be Sergeant Savage. Ooh. And my first would be Law. <laughs> I w- I knew that one was coming. Nice. God, Hit and Run had that awesome bag with the knife that you could put on the yep, side of it. Yep. And he had that all that green camouflage, you know. Was- yep. And the the cool the cool little snub nosed machine gun. I used to always have him sneak up behind the terror drum. <laughs> At least my, my I didn't own the terror drum. That was out of my price range, but I I built my own <laughs> out of whatever. Nice. Uh, so, which one of you guys would like to go next? I can go. Um, okay. My number five was. Uh, I'm going to get specific here. Storm Shadow version three, where we introduced the um, kind of gold accessories, and he had that really neat fade in his camouflage. Okay. Number, number four is I brought it up earlier. Scoop because of that awesome helmet that he had. Number three is Beachhead uh, version one because of the baggy pants. <laughs> <laughs> number two is Snake Eyes version four, where Snake Eyes had almost kind of like the uh, snowboarding goggles, the orange, and he was, you know, the rest of him was blue and black. My number one, and I saw him today at Acme Collectibles, and God, if he was if, $14.99, there were five minutes left before the registers closes, Shockwave. Oh, cool, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember I Shockwave. Shockwave. Huh? Shockwave was kind of like a really cool beach, yeah. in my opinion. SWAT team yeah. member, right? Good choices. Thank you, thank you. Um, I can. I guess I can go. Okay, okay. go ahead, Rob. All right. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and do mine. Um, I, as I, as I said before, mine. I I loved like the ninja characters, but mm-hmm. um, so uh, my number five is gonna be Quick Kick. Um, Jinx almost made the list, but but uh, Quick Kick, I was one of my favorites. He was one of the original ones that I had. Um, then of course Storm Shadow, uh, followed by Snake Eyes. Because I, I like I said, I love the ninja characters, but I couldn't ever get them. I don't think I ever actually owned Storm Shadow or Snake Eyes. Um, I coveted my Snake Eyes. Oh man, I'm so jealous. Uh. Um, but my number two, and it's probably largely because of the cartoon, because the cartoon really made me like his character. But that was Roadblock. 
Um, and I, I don't know what it was about his character. Maybe it was that he rhymed everything he said. Maybe it was that he was just really big and strong, but roadblock. You should just start talking like that from now on. (laughs) But, but yeah, roadblock was probably my number two. And just like, uh, just like Ron, Ron Rudat, my, my favorite character has got to be Scarlet. Okay. Good choice. There, there is an ongoing thing where Rob, who I've known since early high school, is a big fan of redheads. So yeah, I kind of knew this even before the question was asked. He knew that was going to be my number one. Yeah. That, yeah. If there's a redhead, it's going to be his favorite. Um, so I'm going to go with mine. I'm going to go, I'm going deep on my first one. My number five is annihilator oh. because that was the last GI Joe figure that I bought. And he had, he had the little helicopter backpack and it was, it just had great playability. Uh, the first battle Android trooper, also great playability with all the removable hands. Oh, wow. Uh, Storm Shadow Volume 2, or Version 2, rather. Uh, that was, I think, the first one that had the like gray camouflage mm-hmm. stuff. And that was also the first one I was able to get. Uh, the first Firefly, um, again, it was that backpack that had all the assorted stuff in it. You could pretend it was anything. And um, Snake Eyes Version 3, which is the one with the big knives crossed on his chest, and it just looked cool. And I, Oh, yeah. I th- yep, I know that one. It was the one that was a little more military. Yeah, yeah, yeah that looked cool. You had those crossed the knives in front yep mm-hmm. yep yeah so those were those were mine and i based that those are the ones i had that i played with the most and and uh loved although all of the dog characters also could probably be up there as well including law and junkyard and all those guys good choices buddy uh, and and snake eyes with timber yep yep oh yeah our, our next question do you guys want to do the next question, Rob. Just read it. Um, so the the following question is: We've did the we've done the top five uh, favorite characters. What were your top five favorite GI Joe vehicles? Um, okay, uh, number one would be the or number five. That's how we do right. Number five would be the Defiant Space Shuttle Complex. Oh yeah, because oh, because the the cost of tooling that item was well over two and a half million dollars. Wow. And mm. no, you will never, ever, ever see another toy like that in the marketplace again. No company would risk spending that kind of money on tooling it. Um, so that's why it's that's one of my top toys. Um, number four is, um, this is going to be a crazy one, but the G.I. Joe battle copters. Okay. Um, yes. The Zipstrip battle copters that launched up in the air because... That represented my directive to make toys once again, not to make model kits. And, and that was a cool, uh, <laughs> a cool, uh, toy. And, um, it created a great commercial that the FTC sued me on and Hasbro had to pay $25,000 fine. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> because we, 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 they claim we, shot the uh, toy from an angle that the toy could never do what we claimed it did, but we didn't want to argue the point, so we paid the $25,000 fine and had to change the commercial, but that's a whole other story. Uh, number three um, number three is the battle wagon. Um, the motorized battle wagon with the motorized Gatling cannon on the side of the uh, vehicle. Um, and these are all from the later years. Maybe you guys weren't even playing with G.I. Joe by this time. This is, would be the 92, 3, 94 line. Um, because I really think that that was at the end of my time with G.I. Joe. And it was also really the end of the G.I. Joe line. 
um, mass market anyway. Um, number two is the Sergeant Savage Warhawk, which was the uh, P-40 uh, uh, flying tiger plane with the Gatling cannon uh, mounted underneath. Had okay. the spinning propeller and the motorized Gatling cannon. And my number one G.I. Joe vehicle was the Mobat from the 1982 line um, because it replicated one of my favorite toys as a kid, um, a G.I. Joe, a, a tank, a motorized model kit tank called Battling Betsy. And uh, the Mobat um, would be my number one choice. I never got my hands on one of those. I only got my hands on a Mauler. Ah, you got to get the Mobat, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Gotta I gotta get, I gotta get everything back. I only got two two oh. left. Someone stole every someone stole everything out of my garage at my when I was in college. Ah. It's all gone. Oh. Except, for, except for one and a half figures. I've got the stalker figure in the winter gear with the, the kayak still. Mm-hmm. And I've got half of a Clemson guard that happened to be still in the house when they stole the box out of my garage. Um I I'll go next on this one. Sure. Uh sticking with playability, my number five was the Skyhawk. I thought that that was just such a fun vehicle to play with, and uh, I pretty much played with that thing all the time. It had, you know, you could, I don't know, it was just cool. It was a fun, fun vehicle. It could fly anywhere. It could land anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, That's the Cobra a Rattler. I modeled in 3D. Yep. The Cobra Rattler just, it again, had the cannon on the back. Yeah, super cool. I was big into, I was big into World War II stories as well, and so I liked uh, the fact that they had, like, that separate gun pod. Um, even though it was based on a, a it was a thunderbolt, the transportable tactical battle battle platform was my number three. I loved that thing. I loved you know putting people in the little the lift, in the uh, yep, in the little lift and the yeah. helicopter pad and all that stuff. Uh, the killer whale. Apparently, I liked a lot of sea related things. <laughs> uh, killer whale had so much fun you could do with it, and it had the, the movable fans and it you know the little sled that the recon sled that shot out of it. So that one and a lot of figures you could fit on that thing. And my number one was the one that, of course, got me my eventual job, the Cobra Hiss. It was such a cool design. And it was just, when I first saw it, this, it was just, you know, cool black vehicle with a cool logo on it. And that was that was the toy that I wish I still had my, my Cobra Hiss. And when I saw a, a re-release of it about, I don't know, 2002 or three, I immediately snapped it up. So Cobra Hiss is my number one Good. favorite vehicle of all time. Good choices. Nice. I can go next. My number five would be the Hammerhead because it was so out there and it had the um, the glass enclosures were were green, like a neon green. And I just thought that gray and the neon green combination was so cool. Number four, the killer whale. That was, you know, I mentioned that nobody in my neighborhood had the, the flag, but the kids in my, my neighborhood that had the whale, you could put so many figures on it. And you could do these kind of collaborative stories, these scenarios. Number three was the Skyhawk. Uh, it was, like you said, Greg, super versatile. I put that thing through such torture, you know, so many piles of dirt. Um, number two was the, and I had like the hull of this thing. I had this skeletal version of it for so many years was the Phantom X-19. Ah, cool. Yeah. Yep. It, it was just the coolest vehicle it had that almost reminded me of a like a church organ kind of vent dealio in the front oh yeah a stealth looking one yeah so that is cool that was that was a great one it was it was a lot of fun um looked so cool my number one is gonna be the snowcat neat although i didn't grow up in 
you know, we didn't have a lot of snow or anything. I, I could always pretend and it was just so rugged and cool looking mm-hmm. that, uh, it, yeah, that's my number one. Cool. Nice. Very nice. Thank you. So like, like I said before, I, I didn't really own very many of the vehicles. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I'd probably have to go at my number five with, uh, I probably have to put the ones that I drooled over, but knew that there was no chance that I was ever going to get. Um, and that would be the USS flag and the, um, and the hovercraft. I really liked the hovercraft as well, but there was no way I was ever going to get either of those. Well, we um, can dream, right. What's that? Yep. We can dream, right? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, he does it with the redheads. Why can't he yeah, do it with the toys? Exactly. 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 Um, then, then there was one, there was one vehicle that I actually did get. Um, and you're going to laugh at me though, because I'm actually considering it a vehicle. It was the, uh, the dreadnought air skiff. Okay. Yeah. The, the little bitty air skiff yep. thing. Yep. Um, I think it, I think it came with a character too. It came with a uh, Zanzibar, I believe. Uh, yep. Zanzibar. Yep. Yeah. So I had that one. Um, and it was one of the few vehicles that I actually got. Um, but there was, there was another, there was another vehicle that came with another character that I like. He didn't actually make my list, but Dusty was also one of the characters that I really liked growing up. And at at one point, I think he came with a Jeep, or at least I always remembered him in a Jeep. Um, I don't remember the name of that vehicle though. I just always called it Dusty's Jeep. That Dusty's Jeep. We'll go with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but my number two is probably going to be the Cobra Hydrofoil. I always thought that thing looked so awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yep, that is a yep. great looking, great looking ship. Yep. Yeah. And and my number for my number one, I have to go with the uh with the iconic one. I have to agree with Greg and go with the Cobra Hiss. Yeah, the Hiss very nearly made my list. Yeah. Excellent choices, all of you. Excellent choices. Thank you. Means Thank a lot. Yeah. Uh, so at this point on the show, it's just uh, yeah, the the floor is yours. Working on anything now? Anything you want to plug, talk about before we uh, let you go? Okay. Um, no, I just enjoyed the time I spent with you guys. Um, it always is fun to you know to talk to fans, especially you know guys like you who you know actually remember playing with all these toys and and having a number of them, and the fact that you guys span. Um, almost, I guess, the entire, you know, span of G.I. Joe. Let's remember, G.I. Joe came out in 82, um, Mm -hmm. lasted, you know, in its prime, lasted until 1994, uh, into 95. Um, and you guys, you know, were playing with it all those years. I mean, early on to towards the end. Um, so it's interesting to talk with you guys and get a perspective on what you thought of the, the work that I was working on and that my team was working on. Um, I thoroughly had a great time. Um, we'll have to do this again sometime. Oh, I would love to. Absolutely. Yeah, if, you, if you speak to any of your your team as well, still, um, I just you know thank them for you know oh, yeah. so many yeah. years of, of fun <laughs> and. Yeah, I, know. I definitely will. I see Ron Rudat every now and then. Um, I I'm teaching now at at Providence College. I teach marketing. I see Ron as often as I used to. Um, but I also, one of my business partners is, um, the head of, used to be the head of R and D at Hasbro, Steve DeGuano. He had, he had a big okay. hand in uh, the GI Joe creation. Um, I see him almost every week. Uh, and you know, I stay in touch with, uh, a number of my, 
uh, product managers um, that Vinny DeLeva, Bob Swanson, guys that um, all had a hand in the creation of the G.I. Joe legend. So, um, yeah, it's, it'll be good. It, I'll say hello to all of them for you guys. Yeah, please. Thank that'd, be, that'd be fantastic. And let Ron know that he is absolutely correct. Scarlet is the best. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, uh, we, we want to thank Kirk for being here with us on the podcast. It was, um, you know, one of, one of my bucket list things. You're so welcome. I do yeah. thank you. And guys, do you have anything to say? Thanks for joining us. It was actually, it was actually very enlightening and it was a, this is a great episode. I'm really, I'm really glad you were able to join us. Great. I enjoyed it. Like I said, and we'll do it again. Yeah. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, sir. Are you guys going to be going to any of you guys going to Joe con this year? Uh, because of the four or five year old, I don't, this I think this year it's like in Tennessee or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Chattanooga. Chattanooga. If it gets within, within reach of Florida, like, easy reach of florida i would go i'm gonna go like if it's back in orlando or if it goes to atlanta or something yeah. i just i can't pull it off this time but uh, there i will be at another one at some point <laughs> Whoa! all right i look forward to seeing you guys at some point down the road yeah, yeah. and and we will if it, if it gets down if it gets down into the florida area we will likely all three of us be there as well perfect be, be a pleasure to meet you in That'd person and, you know again thank you so much for joining us and you know shaping our childhoods well thank you for 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 making my career. I appreciate it. Yo, Joe! He'll fight for freedom wherever there's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe! G.I. Joe is there. So now you know, and knowing's half the battle. Cobra!